0: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I am your host, Taylor Rockwell. I am obviously not Daryl Grove. He instead is somewhere in England enjoying himself, I would presume. Uh, instead, I am going to be talking to Caitlin Murray today. Caitlin Murray of Yahoo and of the recent book, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Uh, it's an excellent book. We get into it in the very beginning of the interview, but then we focus much more on the U.S. Women's National Team. Uh, we talk about the roster since Caitlin hasn't been on the show since that roster came out. Uh, we talk about their results last night. We're recording this on Friday. Last night was their five, no win over New Zealand. We get into sort of the ramifications of that win, uh, what we think that might mean about the starting 11 and about the U.S.'s approach to the tournament. But we also answer some, uh, Twitter questions, which seem very much, uh, focusing on what happens if certain key players get injured. Uh, so hopefully some nerves will be calm by the end or at least calmer by the end of this episode. Uh, We shall see. That's up to you. Uh, But for now, uh, I will stop rambling and instead turn it over to me talking to Caitlin Murray. With me now, I've got Caitlin Murray, author of The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Caitlin, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me this Friday afternoon, evening. Of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. Afternoon, your time over on the West Coast. I'm going to say slight evening over here on the East Coast. We'll see when people end up listening to this. Uh, But I started off by discussing the book. I wanted to start there, I guess. Uh, Can you tell people, I know you've, uh, I think last year on the show, I can't remember if the book had just come out or was about to come out, but I'm curious, what has the reaction been? And for people who don't know, what is the book about?
1: Yeah, so the book, The National Team, The inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer, it's sort of uh, the full history of the team. No one has really done a full history of the team starting when the team started in 1985 to now with, you know, exclusive reporting, original reporting, interviewed a lot of former players, former coaches, U.S. soccer people for this book. And the reaction that I've gotten from at least, you know, people who are fans of the team and um, who know the book is out there, Mm -hmm. uh, the reaction has been really positive. Um, I think what I, I tried to write the book that I would want to read as someone who's followed the team. So there's a lot of like anecdotes, stories, things that have never been out there before. So um from that perspective, I think it's interesting. And if maybe you don't follow the team super closely and you're just excited for the World Cup, I think this will be a good primer for some of, you know, the context and kind of how the team got to where it is today.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's what I've very much enjoyed about it because I think for me, I, I don't really know why, but in my mind it was just like, yeah, 1991, they started winning World Cups and that's how it's been. And then I think for some people it was like 1999 is yeah, when they started yeah. winning World Cups. <laughs> so like, it's, it's interesting yeah, to go back all the way to 1985. With, was there one thing that you especially enjoyed learning about or hearing about in the early days of the U.S. women's national team?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite stories in the book is there's a point where Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy are sitting in a conference room with the president of U.S. soccer, Bob Contagulia, and they're kind of getting into a tense back and forth with him, and they threaten to quit the team, and they're really kind of, like, laying it all out on the line in this this meeting. And, I mean, that's the sort of thing you just don't, hear about. And these are two of the most important players on the team. Mia Hamm at that point was a legitimate star. And for her to look Bob Consiguli in the face and say, I am going to hang up my boots. I'm never going to play soccer again if you don't treat us better. If you, the situation had to deal with a lawsuit, if you don't withdraw your lawsuit. I mean, that's a pretty brazen thing to do because, you know, This was 1999. There was not a lot of other options for these players. If they didn't play for the national team, that was pretty much it for their soccer career. So it was those stories like that, a lot of the really behind-the-scenes stuff that you just never would have heard about at the time, and even now you don't really hear those stories – I mean that that was kind of the stuff I was really interested in. Yeah. There are obviously soccer stories, but those sorts of stories I thought were just fascinating.
0: I, I agree. I've I've enjoyed it. I, I have not finished, but I've enjoyed everything I've read thus far and I look forward to finishing. Those who have finished it or those who have started reading it uh that listen to the show have uh let us know they, they've enjoyed every minute of it. They're Every part of it, I should awesome. say, or every minute of reading would probably be the best way to put it. So, uh, as have <laughs> every I, page, every single page, including uh, the end with all the uh, the notes and everything like that, and like you know so where where your sources came from, your, and even the. Uh, like the the index at the end, too. I've read every page yeah, of matters. it Yeah, I
1: tried to be thorough, yeah. <laughs> oh, I did
0: appreciate that. So again, it's the national team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. Uh, Caitlin Murray, though, we have you on the show to discuss a little bit more about the current national team mm-hmm. uh, because we haven't even spoken since the roster came out, the official roster for the World Cup. Uh, Daryl and I like talked about it before we started recording, and I think we were both like pretty optimistic, and yet when we actually did the recording, I found myself getting more and more negative the longer it went on. And I'm not entirely sure why, uh, but we definitely had some concerns about lack of depth at certain positions. I'm wondering how you felt when you first saw that roster.
1: Yeah, I actually listened to the podcast that you guys did right after the roster came out. And and you talked about how you felt a little nervous about it and you were going to have me on to try to talk you down. And I kind of agree with you. Okay. There, there, are some, there are some choices that I, I think I understand on some level. I mean, Jill Ellis did a conference call after the roster came out. You know, one of the big decisions that was a talking point was Casey Short did not make the roster. Mm-hmm. So the left back depth chart is pretty much Crystal done and just Crystal done at this point. Yeah. Um, I think Tierna Davidson could fill in. I think... Well, what Jill Ellis implied on the conference call is that Kelly O'Hara, the starting right back, is actually the backup at left back. So that's not super ideal. But one of my big takeaways from what Jill Ellis said is that she really wanted experience on this roster. And that was sort of the deciding point in a lot of these decisions. Casey Short, unfortunately for her, she has never been in a World Cup or an Olympics. Allie Krieger obviously has. She's a very experienced player. So I think that's how she came to some of these decisions. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if some of these worst case scenarios pop up, how she's going to cope with that. Because there is definitely a distinct lack of depth in the defensive part of the field. Offense. They have options yeah, for days. This is definitely true. <laughs> Defense, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if they get backed into a situation where they actually have to use their depth.
0: Um, I, w- I wanted to ask you, though, to start off with because I do want to get to the strengths, I do want to get to some of the vulnerabilities and potential solutions to them. But, uh, Yeah, I heard Jill Ellis talk a lot about experience, and that was a a big priority for her, it seems, uh, at least when selecting this final roster. Uh, Why do you think that is? And I know that's like an obvious question because you always want experience on a team. But it feels like she – not necessarily that she suddenly decided she wanted experience, but it seems like it suddenly became a priority that this team have more experience than inexperience. And is that a reaction to what happened in the Olympics, or is that just something that Jill Ellis has always preferred?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a little surprising because she spent the past couple of years since the Olympics bringing in new players who did not have experience. I mean, she has given 20 players their first caps since the Olympics. She's brought 30 players in for their first call-ups since the Olympics. She clearly has been open to finding new talent. But then when push came to shove, she picked Allie Krieger, who hadn't even been in the team for two years because Jill Ellis was looking at these other options. So I think it is a little surprising. I mean, I think it's human nature to always go with what you know. You want to go with the known quantity rather than roll the dice on something that could go either way. But Morgan Bryan, I think, was another decision that really surprised people. She hasn't been playing well the past couple of years. She actually didn't even make uh, one of the recent rosters. And I think everyone sort of assumed, well, that's it. She's out of the team. She lost her spot because she hasn't been playing well. And then she makes a team. And when Jill Ellis was asked about that, she specifically said, I've seen what Morgan Bryan can do in a World Cup. I know how she's going to handle being in the pressure cooker of a World Cup. So I think coaches do tend to prefer experience. I think it's surprising just the way that it played out. I think if you told me that this was the roster in 2016, you had a time machine and you said this is going to be the World Cup roster in 2019. I wouldn't have batted an eye at that, Mm -hmm. but it's the way it sort of played out that was a little bit surprising.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense to me, especially like For me, who, like, we kind of pop in in our coverage of the, of the US women's national team around big tournaments and then around big games. For you, uh, who's watching every single game and every single minute, I, yeah, I imagine it would be that much more. Eye raising, even if at first you wouldn't have batted an eye. Uh, but I then I guess it makes me want to talk about some of the players who she did include, uh, like Morgan Bryan, for example, uh, who you mentioned. So what do you think her role is then in this World Cup squad? Is she going to be a role player? Do you expect her to potentially start a game or two? Uh, or is she there again, just to be like kind of the experienced leader?
1: Yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing her really playing a role in this World Cup. I mean, like I said, Morgan Bryan hasn't been playing very well. Part of that is she's just dealt with a lot of injuries over the last couple years. I think also maybe there's been some confidence issues when you aren't getting into a rhythm and you're kind of struggling a little bit. Um, I think that she is a backup Option. I think there are certain places where Jill Ellis did bring a little bit more depth, and I think Morgan Ryan is one of those depth pieces. Um, You know, in 2015, I don't know that there was a role for her either, but then um, when Lauren Holiday got that yellow card suspension, Morgan Ryan was asked to play a defensive midfielder role, which is not really what she plays, but she stepped up. She did it. And I think something like that has a lot of value to Jill Ellis because she's seen, okay, this was a high-stakes situation. This was a position that Morgan Bryan really hadn't been asked to play, but she was able to do it in that moment. And I think Jill Ellis just sort of trusts Morgan Bryan. Again, I think it would probably take an injury or a suspension to see Morgan Bryan playing a role. Um, But, you know, that's what World Cups are about. Anything can happen.
0: So uh, we'll see. So I think the biggest fear uh, for for US fans right now is that something does happen to Julie Ertz. Uh, if she does get injured, yeah. or at least more injured than when she played with gauze in her mouth, uh, who on this <laughs> roster do you think is mostly, most likely to deputize, or do you think uh, Jill Ellis kind of changes her whole approach if Julie Ertz isn't available?
1: Well, I think that's one of the reasons I was surprised that McCall Zerboni mm-hmm. didn't make this roster, because... She was probably the most like-for-like player you could have had on the roster behind Julie Ertz to kind of bring that physical presence. Um, I I don't see if Julie Ertz can't play. I don't think that Jill Ellis is just going to blow everything up because I think she really believes in the 4-3-3 in the system that they have set up and the roles that the players have now. Um, I think probably, you know, Samantha Mewis is someone who has been talked about a lot over the last couple months because she's been playing so well. And I think Samantha Mewis will be the backup option for anyone in the central midfield that can't play because... I wouldn't say that Samantha Mewis is the best at any single thing, but I do think she is the most well-rounded option in the central midfield. And I think she can kind of fill any role and do a fine job. So I I think maybe Samantha Mewis fills in if Ertz is injured and, you know, maybe uh, Lindsey Horan plays more of a number six role and Mewis is box to box. Maybe it goes the other way. Um, But I, I don't know if the team falls apart without Julie Ertz. I know there are a lot of concern from fans about that i've I've seen uh, a lot of questions about that um but I think central midfield is actually where the u s has some of the most depth. Um, I mean, Ellie Long is an option too. I just, I really think that Mewis is going to fill in no matter what happens. All
0: right. Uh, So you listed a lot of midfielders there. One like kind of half-baked idea I had uh, in that roster review show uh, was that maybe she could move a center back forward like Becky Sauerbrunner, Abby Dahlkemper. Is that a possibility or do you think that's pretty unlikely?
1: I feel like if that were an option, we would have seen it before because... That's fair. <laughs> look, Jill Ellis has not been afraid to try just random stuff. I mean, uh, Mallory Pugh has played in the central midfield. Tobin Heath has. Uh, Crystal Dunn, who is, you know, the only left back, again, for the team. Yep. So we've seen Jill Ellis just try a lot of random stuff. Um I don't know that she is necessarily going to do all these things in France, but I think she wants the option. She wants to know what she can get if she has to do something like that. And there, there was a time when the national team kind of didn't really have a defensive midfielder after Shannon box retired, where I think a lot of people were talking about, Oh, Becky Sauerbrunn would be perfect for that role. It didn't, it, it never really happened. And I would be surprised if Jill Ellis gives it a go in a World Cup without testing it first.
0: All right, well, that was that was definitely my half-baked idea, but since Daryl is not here today, I'm going to say that was Daryl's fault, Daryl's idea. <laughs> and that was a terrible idea, Daryl. You never should have suggested that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's sorted. Thank you for that. Um, then I wanted to talk about last night's uh, game. We had a few questions about that one. Uh, Steve Malanga uh, tweeted us to ask you, uh, how does New Zealand rate competitively and what should we make of the recent victory over them? Uh, obviously, the United States defeated New Zealand 5-0 last night. A fairly comprehensive victory. Uh, So Caitlin, yeah, how strong are New Zealand and what did you make of that result?
1: Well, I think New Zealand is actually better than they looked last night. I thought last night was a pretty disappointing performance from them and I saw a lot of kind of just mental lapses, communication mistakes in the back line. I just, I felt they didn't look as disciplined and organized defensively as we've seen from them in the past. You know, New Zealand is not up to the level of the U.S., but they can certainly give them more trouble than they did last night. Um, I don't know if it's a talent... Issue. I think it might be just kind of the pieces coming together. Tom Sermani only took over the New Zealand team in October, uh, right before World Cup qualifying. So he hasn't necessarily had a ton of time with the team either. Um, and that was interesting. That was the first time Tom Sermani has faced the U.S. since he was fired and replaced by Jill Ellis. Um, so he probably wasn't happy with that performance either. Um, I think it might just be more of um, – kind of a form issue a cohesion issue um, I don't I, I don't know what was your sense of
0: how New Zealand played um, I mean I When it comes to the U.S., I think, and especially when Daryl and I aren't rewatching them, uh, it tends to be that I focus more on the United States than New Zealand. And I think I was Mm -hmm. inclined to see what the U.S. was doing as being particularly problematic. I felt like the United States did a very good job, I think, as you pointed out in your uh, Yahoo article, of spreading the field, attacking the channels. And it didn't feel like New Zealand did very much to deal with that or to effectively cope with that. And I think kind of the ease with which the United States was able to score – like some of their goals, uh, it, it felt to me sort of like uh they – basically New Zealand were just kind of like, okay, we'll sit back. We'll kind of try to bunker a little bit. We'll let them have the ball out wide. Oh, no, they've scored on us already. And that's sort of <laughs> – right. so like I yeah. so I can't tell if that was just the United States sort of really feeling it and being like in the moment very confident and New Zealand feeling kind of the opposite or maybe just not setting up properly or maybe some combination thereof. But I was definitely – I guess I took solace in some of my concerns from that roster review show by watching this U.S. team sort of very effectively take apart New Zealand. Uh, But that actually leads me to the next question, which you pointed out uh, in that Yahoo article, um, which people should read, um, is that it did feel like the United States went down those wings they attacked in the channels pretty frequently, pretty consistently. And the concern there becomes if an opponent sort of nullifies that or really does pack it in the box and effectively blocks off some of those crosses – What do you think the United States does then? I mean, we're looking at maybe what Sweden did as an example in the Olympics that caused lots Mm -hmm. of problems, lots of crosses coming in, but not really any sort of effective way of evolving from there. So do you think the U.S. does have a game plan or do you think then we're sort of looking at individuals trying to make something happen?
1: Well, I think you you mentioned the 2016 loss to Sweden Mm -hmm. in the Olympics, and I do think that has been sort of a – guiding moment in the team's history throughout the past couple years because that I think that has sort of dictated everything Jill Ellis has done it's how do we get past teams that are going to do what Sweden does in bunker and in that game in 2016 they crossed the ball 38 times I mean it was all coming from the wing and my concern is that that actually hasn't changed that much that when you look at what the attack is doing a lot of it is coming down the flanks. And look, it makes sense. Tobin Heath is on the flank. Megan Rapinoe is on the flank. Mm-hmm. They are very good players. Um, but I think that's why a player like Rose Lavelle is probably going to be a starter and why she will probably be, be important to this team. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people talking about, can can Samantha Mewis get on the field? Maybe you take Rose Lavelle off or something like that. Rose Lavelle, I think, is really the only sort of playmaking number 10 type player on the roster and she can deliver those line breaking passes. She is able to kind of move the ball around the box in a way that I'm not sure, uh, you know, some of the other players on the team can, I think you need a player like Rose Lavelle to do that. And if she has a good world cup, I think that's going to help the U S be able to attack in different ways and find goals in different ways. You know, to Jill Ellis's point about experience mattering, Rose Lavelle has not played in a tournament Mm -hmm. of this level before. So it's going to be interesting to see how she sort of steps up to the occasion and is able to deal with that.
0: Much, much more from my conversation with Caitlin Murray still to come. But first, I wanted to let our listeners know that today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Roughneck Scarves. Roughneck Scarves is the official scarf provider of U.S. soccer, Major League Soccer, the USL, and the NCAA. For purposes of today's show, uh, worth noting, they've got an entire range of scarves relating to the U.S. women's national team. Some of them just say USWNT on them. Some of them have different, uh, slightly catchy slogans, most of which you're probably familiar with, such as One Nation, One Team. But then you've got the individual player scarves. Uh, you've got, just to name a few, Alex Morgan, Alyssa Nyer, Becky Sauerbrunn in there, Crystal Dunn, Megan Rapino, Tobin Heath. There are actually a couple different ones for Julie Ertz. I personally enjoy the Julie Ertz number 8 with a giant bold font that really kind of, I feel like, explains her key role in this team. Uh, giant font tends to indicate the importance of the player, or at least that's what I'm choosing to believe. Uh, but if you wanted to get, say, a USL scarf, uh, checking out their op- options there. They've got one for Las Vegas Lights, who are doing very well under Eric Winalda, head coach Eric Winalda. Uh, but they've got a super great uh, color scheme happening, so you should check out all of the USL scarves. There are some great ones in there as well. And, of course, there's the Total Soccer Show scarf. You should uh, check that one out, too. And for any of these scarves, you can get the Total Soccer Show discount. All you need do is, at checkout, enter the promo code Total Soccer Show, all one word, all uppercase, that will get you 20% off your order. Once again, that's Total Soccer Show for 20% off at roughneckscarves.com. Thank you very much to Roughneck Scarves for sponsoring today's episode of the Total Soccer Show. Now, back to Caitlin Murray. And what uh, impact do you think Carly Lloyd will have? Obviously, getting two goals against New Zealand has kind of transitioned into the super sub slash just substitute role. It doesn't always have to be a super sub. Like, <laughs> is she, like, do you look to her as being a sort of, like, game changer? Not necessarily in terms of, like, Carly Lloyd's going to come in and score the game-winning goal, but more so, like, does she change the way the United States attacks? Is that what you're expecting from her? Or do you think she kind of plugs in in positions that kind of have already been established and is sort of just fresh legs to do what the United States has already been doing in that particular game?
1: Yeah, Carly Lloyd has made the full transition to just being an out-and-out striker Mm -hmm. now. And I think she is a game-changer in the sense that I do think she comes in and scores goals. I mean, that's what she does. She is extremely clutch for all of the uh, lulls that she goes through when, you know, the team is playing friendlies and, you know, it's kind of an off year and it doesn't really matter. She's not really playing that well and people start wondering why she's even on the team She always turns it on when a major tournament comes. I mean – 2012 Olympics, I think, is the perfect example. She was not a starter. She was on the bench. She wasn't happy about it. Shannon Box got injured 16 minutes into the first game of the Olympics. Carly Lloyd comes on. She eventually scored a goal in that game. The U.S. wins over France. She has a great tournament. She scores two goals in the gold medal match. Um, She is the hero of the Olympics. She's done this time and time again. In 2015, I think people were she was starting, but I think people were really doubting her because she wasn't really having a good tournament. And then she turned it on when it was time. I mean, that's just kind of what she does. And she has been very clear that she does not like being a substitute. She wants to be starting. Uh, She's not hiding that at all. And I think that's, you know, the right mentality. I think that's going to make her really hungry and eager to impact games coming off the bench. And I think she could be a difference maker and sort of you know, a good weapon to have uh, in the U.S.'s back pocket.
0: But if, she, if she's not hiding it, if she's not hiding that desire to start, obviously like, goal scorers want to play. They want to score goals. That makes sense. But does that have the potential, in your opinion, to become a disruptive force if she's not starting? Does she start to get agitated? Does she start to get frustrated? Or is she a professional who can sort of handle that obstacle?
1: Well, like I said, she's kind of had that attitude her whole career, I think. Um, I don't know that it's anything new. Um, It's probably more um, something she shows to the media (laughs) more. Um, She distinctly did not want to talk to the media at all when I was at um, the games in Denver and L.A., she kind of um in LA she actually like circumvented the mix zone so she didn't have to talk to reporters and she didn't play, so she was clearly upset. Um that's that's what goal scorers do. That's mm-hmm. that's what their attitude is. I don't think um anyone on the team um has any sort of issue with that. I, I I don't think it manifests itself in her having a problem with the other players on the team. I think it's more about, well, I'm gonna prove the coaches wrong as soon as I get the chance. And right now she's been doing that. She's been coming in games
0: and scoring goals. What do you? What is your opinion? Uh, Greg left uh, asked about Carly Lloyd. He asked a couple questions, but one uh, that you've answered most of them. One still remains, though. Is like, do you think she is a positive locker room presence? Then, from your experience, like with her transitioning into this role, even if she's not happy with it, do you think she's still in there, kind of picking up her teammates and being that leader, or is she kind of sitting there waiting to get her minutes and then she's picking people up?
1: I mean. It's hard to kind of know exactly what goes on in the locker room. You can ask as much as you want as a reporter. Um, The sense that I've gotten is that Carly has never been sort of the rah-rah motivational speaker sort of player. Like that has just never been who she is. She is someone who wants to lead by example, be very professional work really hard and push everyone else to work hard. So I think that's probably more of the impact that she has in the locker room. And I I don't think that's a bad impact, especially this is a team that does have a few younger players. I think she can set a good example in terms of like her worth work ethic and, you know, how, how hard she pushes herself. So I don't really see it. I think it's just, you know, there are different types of personalities in the locker room and she has, you know, a,
0: Different kind of personality in terms of just kind of quietly doing her work. The, the, yeah, that, that makes total sense because – In my mind, it's the equivalent of like when your team gets a penalty and there's the person who you kind of think would want to take it and they're like, nah, I don't really want to. You never want that person (laughs) to end up actually having to take that penalty because that feels like it's going to be problematic. Similarly, if Carly Lloyd doesn't want to be that kind of vocal locker room leader and she's kind of forced into doing that, then that's probably not going to be the best idea either. So I'm glad that she's kind of doing what she needs to do and the team is good with it. But that does make me wonder then, like we saw Mikhail Zerboni do the kind of very impassioned uh, uh, team talk. She's not there. So if there is a kind of a player who's going to rally, uh, the team, get them all together, get them motivated, say they're, you know, they're still nil nil at halftime in the knockout round. Who do you think that vocal player is who's going to kind of charge everybody up right before the second half starts?
1: Well, I think even just kind of watching the games, you can see how vocal Julie Ertz is. She is really always kind of pumping up the players on the field around her. Um, You see that on the field. I have to think that's happening all the time. Mm -hmm. She's just – she's someone who really communicates a lot. Um, I think some of the other veterans, like Kelly O'Hara, I think does that a lot. That's something you can see. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the players who have been there before, even Allie Krieger, I think – you know, part of the reason that she made the roster, Jill Ellis, you know, of course talked about experience. It's also sort of those intangibles. She said, if a player is not playing, what else are they bringing to the team? And I think part of it is just the locker room presence, the leadership, the communication, um, those sorts of things. So I think Allie Krieger, you know, she may not play a big role in France, but she can certainly be one of those players who is kind of helping the team get pumped up and kind of helping uh, the team get in the right mentality. Uh,
0: I think you've just answered it there, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, Allie Krieger gets her 100th cap last night, uh, but I think we've it, much has also been made of that. I think uh, Jill Ellis was finally able to start what we think will be here starting 11. Krieger comes on for O'Hara. I think it was Mewis on for Haran. Is there a chance that we see either one of them, uh, Krieger or um, Mewis, like kind of forced their way into the starting 11? Or if you had to bet, would you say this is the U.S.'s 11 on uh, like the first game, provided that everyone is uh, healthy?
1: Well, in terms of the back line, I don't think anything is going to change okay. because – Jill Ellis wants these ultra-attacking fullbacks, and that's Crystal Dunn on the left and Kelly O'Hara on the right. Mm -hmm. The other options that are available, that would be Emily Sonnet, Allie Krieger, and Tierna Davidson. They just do not offer the same attacking profile, and that's so important to the way the U.S. plays. So I don't really see someone like Allie Krieger starting. I mean— there is the group stage where maybe there's some rotation. Um, you know, even then, I'm I'm still kind of unsure of, yeah. of who would start behind Kelly O'Hare at this point. Um, but I, I don't really see kind of more of a lasting change there. Samantha Muus has been playing really well. I think she has definitely forced herself into the conversation. Lindsay Haran, who I think would maybe be the player that would come off if Samantha Mewes came on. Uh, Lindsey Horan is really, really good. You don't just take her off the field, you know? Um, She was the MVP in the NWSL last year. She is so good on the ball. And defensively, I think she provides a lot of uh, ball-winning ability. And um, I think it's really important to the midfield to have that. So... It's hard because these are two really good players between Lindsay Horan and Samantha Mewis. I think maybe you sort of um, defer to the group that has gotten more time together, maybe has a little more chemistry together. And I think, you know, that is Lindsay Horan, yeah. unfortunately,
0: for Samantha U.S. Yeah, especially that connects back to the whole uh, Jill Ellis wanting experience. So there you go. Uh, right, but yeah. I, as you also said, uh, we would expect some rotation in the group stage. Uh, DGO, I'm assuming that is not a name, uh, on Twitter <laughs> asked, uh, what do you think Ellis' strategy will be for rotation? Is it to, like, kind of change a few starters with each game or and then use kind of subs with regularity? Or is it sort of significantly changing? from one game to the other. I know you, again, can't really know exactly what's going on in Jill Ellis' head. I'm guessing you know right. a little bit of what's going on in there. Uh, but like, if past is precedent, what would you expect Jill Ellis to do?
1: I think the conventional wisdom is that you want to start strong and secure advancement to the next round as soon as possible. And if that's what Jill Ellis wants, then I think you'll probably just see the starting 11 in the first two games, mm-hmm. get those six points, know that you are going to get out of the group and then worry about the third game later. However, the wrinkle in that is that the game that will decide who wins mm-hmm. that group is yeah. the third game against Sweden. No offense to Thailand and Chile. They are not really going to give the U.S. a run for their money. So conceivably, Jill Ells could probably start her second choice 11 in one of those first two games against um, Chile or Thailand. And, you know, it would probably be fine. The thing is, the way the bracket has worked out, if things sort of go how we expect, the U.S. could end up facing France or Germany in the quarterfinal those are terrible matchups for a quarterfinal for the U S you do not want to have to face those teams. So, I mean, I think maybe what happens is you try to advance out of the group and then maybe see kind of how the other groups have gone, map out the possibilities. Maybe you don't want to win that game against Sweden. Maybe you don't want to come first in the group at that point. Um, it's hard to say. I think knowing the U S and sort of their mentality and how they approach tournaments, I expect that they're going to go full throttle from the beginning, try to get six points through the first two games. And I don't even know if, if things shook out in a certain way, I don't even know if they would not fully go after the third game. Mm-hmm. I think the U.S.'s mentality is we have to beat good teams to win the world cup. Let's win every game. So, um, yeah, I I don't know that they're, you know, Jill Ellis is just going to put out a second choice 11. I think we'll just see some rotation from players who maybe look a little tired or maybe they got a knock or something, but... Yeah, I, I expect Jill Ellis to kind of be conservative, but we'll see. I could be wrong.
0: <laughs> I mean, no, that, that, that all that all makes sense, uh, especially because Daryl and I tried to do sort of the like permutations on who could advance and who would they play. But given the expanded tournament uh, format, tournament combined, there we go. Uh, more teams going <laughs> through it makes it a little bit harder to do those sort of predictions. So yeah, I think it's probably just better to yeah do whatever do whatever comes like most natural to Jill Ellis uh, and hope for the best. But that becomes yeah. my next question because. It does feel like she is hoping for the best that like Crystal Dunn and Julie Ertz make it all the way through. In the worst case scenario, <laughs> if those two uh, did get injured, I guess I'm trying to like give people who are listening an idea of what to look for on the field. Uh, you talked a little bit about how maybe Sam U.S. comes into midfield. I feel like that we kind of solved that one. But if Crystal Dunn goes down, what would your expectation be there? Who starts? Say she gets injured in the first game. Who starts that second game at left back?
1: It sounds sort of crazy, but I think Kelly O'Hara, the starting right back, goes over to the left side, and then either Emily Sonnet or Allie Krieger start at right back. I'm still not sure which one, but it is sort of amazing that the backup option is to take a starter from another position and move them there. But I think that's that's probably what would happen, Um, because the other option is you could start Tierna Davidson as a left back, Tierna Davidson is 20 years old. She's the youngest player on the team, and she's very good, but she's never played on that sort of stage before. And she's been very good in some of the, you know, she believes cup games that she's played in Tournament of Nations. There have also been ones where she sort of looked rattled, like she had a bad start and it just sort of snowballed from there. And I don't know if Jill Ellis is going to trust Tierna Davidson to, you know, Mm -hmm. start in a World Cup and have to hold down the left side, especially against a good team, that is, you know, probably going to target her and attack down that side. I think Tierna Davidson is a very good player, and she could see some minutes. But I think probably the main reason she's on this roster is that she is 20 years old. She is really good, and she's going to be an important part of this team for cycles to come. So get her some experience right now. But yeah, in in that scenario, if Crystal Dunn can't play. Mm-hmm. Probably move Kelly O'Hara to the left and then, you know, pick one of the other options for right back.
0: Can we go Can we go all out attack and just like say Crystal Dunn and Kelly O'Hara and Ellie Krieger all get hurt? That's not great. Can we go like <laughs> Megan Rapinoe left back, uh, Tobin Heath right back, and then we can just start like Mallory Pugh and Christian Press ahead of them and just be the most attacking team possible?
1: Well, uh, the 2016 uh, game against Sweden that everyone still talks about yeah. because, you know, it was the worst loss in program history. The game ended with Tobin Heath playing right back. So it's not <laughs> out of go. the realm of possibility if, you know, they get pushed into a corner. they I think, in, you know, if that happened, God, that would be <laughs> that would be terrible. But maybe just go to like a three back System or so. I mean, okay. I mean, they've tested that out. They've done that late in some games. They are capable of doing that. It's not ideal. I don't think they look as good when they do that, but I think it would be an option. Hopefully. Uh. That doesn't happen.
0: Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> that would, that, that would means something is going horribly wrong <laughs> one way or yes. the other. Yes, let's not have that happen. Uh, a couple more questions. I don't want to take up too much of your time. This one from John Adams uh, says, or asks, excuse me, what non-trophy result would still be considered a successful tournament, if any? Is there a worst-case result that triggers big changes post-tournament? So I guess taking those uh, one at a time, short of winning this this tournament – is that is that kind of uh, an unsuccessful tournament, or do you think if the United States makes it to the final and plays a very, very good France team and loses, do they come away with this sort of heads held high with it being a successful tournament?
1: Look, repeating winning a World Cup is really hard, and if people are, are going to set the standard that the U.S. has to win again, I think they're probably going to be disappointed. I mean, how many times have teams repeated in back-to-back years? On the women's side... Happened just once. Germany did it. Mm-hmm. I think on the men's side, it only happened once as well. Um, yeah, it doesn't it's happen very often. I'll say that. Yeah, it's very rare. So I think a reasonable expectation for this U.S. team is, you know, other than that 2016 Game against Sweden where they got knocked out of the Olympics Mm. in the quarterfinal. The U.S. has always made it to third place in a major tournament. They've never not made the third place game. So I think that, again, is probably the standard. If they get knocked out before that point, um, you know, I think that would be a disaster for the team. And Mm. I, I don't think there's a lot of, you know, gray area in between having a good tournament and a bad tournament for this team because the expectations are so high um they could repeat again i think it's very difficult to do that mm-hmm. though
0: and uh and then is there a worst case like I, I i don't really know i should know this but i don't i don't know what jill Ellis' plans are post this world cup um but like if they crashed out i mean i doubt they're gonna crash out on the group stage but if they got knocked out in the first round do you think that does kind of force the u.s especially given that uh uh youth national teams haven't been doing as well uh, on the women's side. Uh, I'm like, I'm wondering, do you think that brings about change or do you think us soccer just kind of stays the course and uh, figures that out slowly as has been sort of their tendency in the past?
1: Well, as it is, it's a little unprecedented that Jill Ellis is even still the coach of the team. I mean, she won a world cup and I think you have to do that when coaches win championships, you give them contract extensions. (laughs) That's just kind of how it works. Um, I think probably I would think there will be a coaching change at some point anyway, just because that's how national teams tend to go. Coaches don't really stay in those jobs for that long. I guess the question is what would it take for them to maybe make that change before the Olympics instead of waiting and then giving the next coach, you know, three years or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, the way the the draw went the U.S. could play France or Germany in the quarterfinal. They could have another really early knockout. That would be a disaster. Um, I, you know, we haven't really gotten a large sample size of what kind of president of U.S. soccer that Carlos Cordero is. So I don't know if he would immediately fire Jill, Jill Ellis if that happened or if he would stay the course. I mean, it's not as much, I mean, it's partly about the coach and Jill Ellis and what she does. It's also like, what is U- us soccer's management like now? What are they going mm-hmm. to decide? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's something we can speculate
0: on. <laughs> Alright. Well then, I'll, I'll turn it to happier speculation for the final question. This one comes from uh, Taylor Boves. Uh, if you could have any player, we're going to say you expand the roster to 24 players for this World Cup. Um, if you could have any player from uh, 1999 step into this roster, who would you pick? And it's kind of it's kind of strange because my automatic answer to this one for myself was Mia Hamm. So I realized that mm. there's lots of attacking talent on this team. So now I'm yeah. not really so sure. I wondering what would you say Caitlin
1: yeah I saw this question and I assume it means like this player in her prime I am going to go with Michelle Akers okay because I think she was the best player on that team Mm -hmm. I mean Mia Hamm was obviously excellent and she got a lot of the attention Michelle Akers was so crucial to the way that team played she just she held down the midfield. She was this marauding physical presence. Um, And I think she played that role better than anyone for the U S ever has. Um, She would be a big difference maker. And I think also her mentality, I mean, that is a player who, um, you know, she got concussed multiple times, had surgeries. Um, She just played through everything. Her mentality, um, I think sort of gave her an edge that, you know, any team would be lucky to have. So I would probably say Michelle Akers. You know, I like your shout for Mia ham. I think you're right, though, that this team has a million
0: great attackers. It's just weird to say. No, yeah.
1: no offense to Mia Hamm. Yeah. I don't know if they really need her.
0: Um, yeah. No, I think, I think Michelle Akers is a solid pick because I, – and I also think that, like, especially in, for that 99 team, with interest sort of, like, booming from that result, I do think that there tends to be the emphasis on Mia Ham and then Brandy Chastain scoring the penalty. Mm-hmm. Maybe Brianna Scurry a little bit, but, again, that's from that shootout. And I think – contrast that with today, whereas I think we're all... I mean, there's a reason why I asked you about Julia, it's like six times. I think, yeah, like maybe Michelle (laughs) Akers, if she were playing now, gets a little bit more love, gets a little bit more hype. I do then have to ask you this though, and she is phenomenal, you're absolutely right, and I think could play that role if we needed to, so that's good. My question then is, if you're bringing her from 1999, is she bringing like the kind of perm helmet, or are you going to update the look (laughs) for 2019?
1: Oh, no, she has to keep uh, her her nickname was Mufasa for, you know, because she had that mane of curly hair. I also think it was an appropriate nickname because she sort of like pounced (laughs) on the other team. (laughs) You know, a lot of lion references you can make. But, Mm. yeah, no, you have to keep that because... Really easy to identify her on the field, too, because she's the only player without, you know, her hair up in a ponytail. So, yeah, she's got to keep it.
0: It makes sense. And I've never seen her in a room with wildebeests. So now I know why the Mufasa <laughs> thing works out even more. I get it. Uh, Caitlin, I really appreciate you taking all the time uh, and especially putting up with terrible jokes like I just made. Uh, but one more <laughs> time, uh, it's the national team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. I'm going to assume that is available everywhere, which is to say available on Amazon.
1: Yes, it's on Amazon, and it's in uh, Barnes & Noble locations Ooh. across the country.
0: Wow, brick and mortar and digital. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a modern world we live in. Uh, and <laughs> Caitlin is obviously going to be uh, in France covering the, the national team, uh, and our hope is to have her uh, make semi-regular appearances throughout the tournament, her schedule permitting. So I guess I'm just putting you on the spot and saying, yeah, Caitlin, thanks for doing that.
1: Yep, I guess, I guess I'm locked in now. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> there talk, I'll talk to you then.
0: There we go. Sounds good.